let's uh, turn in our Bibles to the 8th chapter of Proverbs. Uh, we've been studying the book of Proverbs this fall, and uh, we come to Proverbs that uh, deal with justice and, and with government. It's been said that uh, the responsibilities of a Christian toward the state are the responsibility is to pray, to pay, and to obey. Uh, we're told to pray in 1 Timothy uh, chapter 2, verse 2 and 3. Paul says, I exhort, therefore, that prayer uh, be made for kings and for all in authority. Uh, we're to pay. Jesus said, Rend unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, referring to, is it lawful to pay tribute? And uh, we are to obey. In Romans 13, uh, you have Paul saying that we are to be subject to the higher power, speaking of the civil authority, he says the powers that be are ordained of God. Pray, pay, and obey, and one other one. We are to get involved in the fray. We are to go ahead and, and uh, enter the battle. We live in a country that has government of the people, by the people, and for the people, and we are a part of the government. It's our responsibility as Christians to be very much involved in the political process. So get into the fray. Be salt and light in our society. Now, when we look at what Proverbs says about uh, government, we find first that God is the one who gives rulers. He places the king in authority. In Proverbs 8, 15, and 16, By me kings reign, and princes decree justice. By me the princes rule and nobles, even all the judges of the earth. That's wisdom that's speaking there, but wisdom is, I think, the second person of the Trinity personified there. It's God, and by him uh, kings reign. You may remember that Nebuchadnezzar, on one occasion walking on the roof of his palace, uh, looked about him and he said, Look at the great Babylon which I have built. And suddenly a voice from heaven says that, uh, he will lose his senses. He'll be like a beast of the field until he comes to know that God reigns in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomsoever he wills. And that's the way it is. God uh, reigns. Uh, the king is given to us in a sense by God. And uh, from that fact comes the concept of the divine right of kings, which was such a characteristic of uh, a number of kingdoms in Europe for a period of time. Uh, you could phrase that, rex lex. The king makes the law, and everyone is to obey because his law is backed up by the fact that God has ordained him, uh, that he is God's representative. Uh, but a... Presbyterian minister by the name of Samuel Rutherford wrote an answer to that theory called Lex Rex. This was published in 1644. He would have lost his life for writing this, except he was dying anyway when they got to him. But uh, this book was outlawed in England and other places. And his thesis was, no, the king doesn't make the law. The king is under 
the law himself, he's under God's law, and if he makes laws that are contrary to God's laws, then he is to be resisted. That's tyranny. A tyranny is uh, whenever the reign of the civil authority does not have the sanction of God. And uh, it is the honor of a Christian to resist tyranny. Now, uh, Rutherford was uh, read greatly by the founders of this country and uh, by the black regiment of the American Revolution. The black regiment were the preachers. Uh, They're the ones that went a long way in sparking the American Revolution. And they were following Rutherford in their preaching. Francis Schaeffer has written a new book, A Christian Manifesto, which is over against the Humanist Manifesto 1 and 2. And uh, in this book, uh, Schaeffer quotes a great deal from Rex Lex, excuse me, from Lex Rex, the uh, book by uh, Rutherford. And uh, he makes the point that Rutherford said that it wouldn't be for just one breach of the law that you would seek to overthrow the civil authority of the king. But if uh, the magistrate acts in such a way that the governing structure of the country is being destroyed, that is, when he is attacking the fundamental structure of society, he is to be relieved of his power and authority. And Schaefer says that is exactly what is happening today, referring to the entrenchment of humanism in our institutions, such as the Supreme Court and so on. And their undermining of the Constitution, the true law of the land, and their undermining of the law of God. As they say, there are no absolutes. There is no right. There is no wrong. Everything is relative. As uh, the Supreme Court Justice uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes said, right is the majority vote of that nation that can lick all others. Well, as Schaefer says, this is exactly what we're facing today. The whole structure of our society is being attacked and destroyed. It's being given an entirely opposite base, which gives entirely exactly opposite results. The reversal is much more total and destructive than that which Rutherford or any of the reformers faced in their day. And uh, one of Rutherford's theses, and... He was followed in this by John Knox and others, was that if a higher civil authority acts tyrannically, acts without proper sanction, that he is to be resisted by a lower civil authority, and finally by the people, if the lower civil authority doesn't resist, but the people should back the lower civil authority. And he gives a case. He says, in Arkansas recently, the state legislature passed and the governor signed a bill that scientific creationism should be taught in the public school. The ACLU is now uh, going to court and seeking to have a higher court, the United States Supreme Court, reverse this and declare that it's unconstitutional, violates separation of church and state, to teach scientific creationism in the public school. Now here are the people of the state of Arkansas who do not want their children taught that God did not create the world. And uh, they do not want their children taught an atheistic approach to life. And so they've passed laws to that effect. And Schaefer says, if there ever was a clearer example of the lower magistrates, that would be 
Arkansas and the state legislature and so on, being treated with tyranny, it would be hard to find. And this would be a time if the courts do rule tyrannically for the state government to protest and refuse to submit. This fits Rutherford's proper procedures exactly. Under the guise of civil liberty, tyranny is involved. Uh, he talks about the fact that the founders of our nation understood that there was a bottom line where you had to take a stand and resist the government. The 13 colonies reached the bottom line. They acted in civil disobedience. That civil disobedience led to open war in which men and women died. And that led to the founding of the United States of America. There would have been no founding of the United States of America without the founding father's realization there is a bottom line. If there is no final place for civil disobedience, then the government has been made autonomous. And as such, it has been put in the place of the living God. Let me ask you a question. Suppose a killing center were set up somewhere around the medical center where older people, uh, those whose lives were deemed worthless by their relatives or by the state, uh, were brought in and were gassed very painlessly but very effectively. And by day and by night, this was taking place. Uh, cars would deliver them. Special vans would pick them up. They would be delivered there. Would you feel that the governor of the state of Alabama, though the civil court had ruled this was in order, that the governor of the state of Alabama should take the state militia and station them around that place and say, no more? Do you think that would be in order? Would you do that if you were governor? Would you call for that if you were a state legislator? And if the state didn't do it, if you were mayor of the city, would you think it would be proper to take the police force and station them around there and say, thus far and no further, you will not bring any more old people in here to be gassed? No. And if this, the mayor didn't do it, would you think you and I should go down there and lock arms and stand there and say, no, We're, no, you're going to have to kill me first. You're not going to do it anymore. Would you think that would be proper? That's what we're saying, see. I think that would be proper. Well, let me ask you a question. What is the difference between killing old folks and killing little babies who are still in their mother's wombs? Isn't any real difference? Isn't it the case of a human life in both issues there? The bottom line. There is a bottom line, and we need to face up to the fact and to begin to really think hard and long about some of these issues. Now, uh, hopefully, uh, we can make it in some other direction, but this is, in a sense, the type thing that led to the founding of our country. Now, not only does the, the Lord give rulers, but that obviously does not mean that all of their acts are to be submitted to, but he controls uh, the heart of the king. He rules in the affairs of men, These, the, the events that take place, the decisions of councils. Proverbs 21.1, the king's hand, heart is in the hand of the Lord as the rivers of water. He turneth it whithersoever he will, like an irrigation channel. 
George Washington, in his inaugural address, made reference to the fact that the king's hand is in the heart of the Lord. He didn't use those words, but the teaching of God's providence. Uh, he dwelt upon, he said, No people can be bound to acknowledge and adore the invisible hand which conducts the affairs of men more than the people of the United States. Every step by which they have advanced to the character of an independent nation seems to have been distinguished by some token of providential agency. Uh, Peter Marshall, Jr. has written a book, Glory, in which he traces the founding of this country, and he traces providential events, the type thing that Washington was so aware of and is referring to. For instance, when uh, Cornwallis landed some 20,000 troops in Brooklyn against the 8,000 that Washington had there, and to cut Washington off and backed him up, and the war was over virtually as far as our side. We were doomed. We had no hope. The British had moved their ships into the East River so that uh, here was Cornwallis and his troops in front, the British ships behind. Uh, the next day they would simply blow us off the face of the map. And during the night, uh, Washington came up with a daring plan. He decided by small boat to move his 8,000 troops from Brooklyn across the East River to Manhattan. Very dangerous, very risky. Uh, if the British ships saw these little boats by the moonlight, they'd simply blast them out of the water. That would be it. If they heard the oars, that would be it. Providentially, recent additions to the United States troops were men whose lives had been spent handling small boats. They rounded up the small boats, and they very deftly carried boat load after boat load, loaded to the gunnels uh, across all night long. But daybreak began to come, and there still were thousands of troops left to be moved. And as soon as it was dawn, why, the British would just blow us out of the water. Here's what happened. What happened next should be told by one who saw it. Major Ben Talmadge wrote in his diary, As the dawn of the next day approached, those of us who remained in the trenches became very anxious for our own safety. And when the dawn appeared, there were several regiments still on duty. At this time, a very dense fog began to rise out of the ground and off the river, and it seemed to settle in a peculiar manner over both encampments. I recollect, I recollect this peculiar providential occurrence perfectly well. And so very dense was the atmosphere that I could scarcely discern a man at six yards distance. We tarried until the sun had risen, but the fog remained as dense as ever. The fog remained intact until the last boat, with Washington in it, had departed. Then it lifted, and the shocked British ran to the shore and started firing after them, but they were out of range. Nearly 8,000 men had been extricated from certain death or imprisonment without the loss of a single life. That type thing is what Washington was referring to. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. God reigns in the affairs of men. Now, we see that God gives the rulers, but what are the qualities necessary for good civil leaders? Proverbs deals a good bit with this. Uh, one, pro one 
a characteristic that is certainly essential for a good civil leader is that he be a righteous man. In uh, Proverbs chapter 29 and uh, verse 2, when the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. But when the wicked beareth rule, the people mourn. Now remember, in Scripture, righteous has a special significance. A righteous man is a man who's right with God. He's a sinner. We've all sinned. But he understands that he's broken God's holy law, and he has come to God in God's appointed way for cleansing and forgiveness. That appointed way in the Old Testament was through the offering of a lamb's blood. That lamb couldn't really atone for a man's sin, but he could picture the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, who would come and die for our sins. And so the true way to be righteous is to put our trust in Jesus Christ, who died for our sins, God's Son, who was raised from the dead. Surrender our will to him. Then we are counted as if we had that perfect obedience which God's law requires. We are reckoned righteous. And we are beginning to be changed so that we become more righteous in our behavior. We don't become sinless, but we make progress. Now, that's a righteous man, a man who's right with God and who's walking with God. That's a requirement to be a good civil leader. You might say, why is that a requirement, to be a good civil leader? Because only such men are going to truly seek God's direction and seek to obey God in their conducting of the affairs of nations. Luther comments on this. Uh, Luther says about a man who is not a true believer and who leads a nation or men who lead a nation and they're not that way. He says, not a single one of these people would direct a sigh up to heaven to seek advice and a plan of action from God. They are either such godless people that their conscience will not permit prayer or invocation, or they are so certain and smug in their wisdom and affairs that they scornfully forget to do it, as though they had no need of it, or they are usually accustomed to lay their plans this way, callous in their unbelief. In the meanwhile, our Lord God has to sit idly above. He does not dare to enter into the plans of such clever people. And he chats meanwhile with his angel Gabriel and says, My dear fellow, what are these wise people doing in their council chamber that they do not draw us into their deliberations? They must be wanting to build the Tower of Babel again. Dear Gabriel, go down there and take Isaiah with you and read them a secret lesson through the window and say, With seeing ears you shall see, with seeing eyes you shall see nothing, and with hearing ears you shall hear nothing. And with understanding hearts, you shall understand nothing, Isaiah 6.10. Take counsel together and let it come to naught. Speak the word and let it not stand. For man is both proposing and disposing, Isaiah 8.10. So shall it be. You get some feeling of why when the righteous rule, the people rejoice. But when the wicked beareth rule, the people mourn. Now, although we would know that, and that would be our background, yet the idea of right and wrong, as we've already seen, in many of the institutions, many of the highest places of our nation, is mocked at. Right is the majority vote of that nation that can lick all others. That's a mockery of right and wrong. We need to listen to Solzhenitsyn 
when he talks about right and wrong, good and evil. Solzhenitsyn makes these comments in uh, speaking about that. He says, in the 20th century, it's almost a joke in the Western world to use words like good and evil. They become old-fashioned concepts, yet they are very real and genuine. The men who created your country never lost sight of their moral bearings. They did not laugh at the absolute nature of the concepts of good and evil. A moral stance, even in politics, always safeguards our spirit. Sometimes, as we can see, it even protects our very existence. A moral stance can suddenly turn out to be more farsighted than any calculated pragmatism. And so he scores what he calls that horrible expression of Bertrand Russell's, better to be red than dead. And he says, why not better to be brown than dead? Referring to when the Nazis in their brown uniforms were invading Europe. What's the difference? If, if better to compromise at one time, why not better to compromise at the other time? The men who say better red than dead didn't say better brown than dead. He says, rather better dead than a scoundrel. And he's saying there is a difference between right and wrong. And you stand up for the right no matter what it costs. That's the way to go. They should be righteous men. Uh, they should be truthful men. In Proverbs 17:7, excellent speech becometh not a fool, much less do lying lips a prince. Again, to quote Solzhenitsyn in his parting words when he's exiled from his own country. He said, live not by lies. And then he said, one word of truth outweighs the whole world. In Proverbs 29:12, if a ruler hearken to lies, all his servants are wicked. Like begets like. They should be honest men. In Proverbs 28:16, revised version, a body who is a great oppressor lacks understanding. But he who hates unjust gain will prolong his days. Proverbs 16:12. It is an abomination for kings to commit wickedness. For a throne is established on righteousness. Proverbs 29:4. The king by judgment establisheth the land, but he that receiveth gifts, meaning takes bribes, overthroweth it. Think of the Abscan scandal. Uh, think of... Uh, how often uh, there's been corruption in our government in recent years. They should have good self-control. In Proverbs 16.32, He that is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he that ruleth his spirit than he that taketh a city. If a man's to rule a city or a nation, he needs to first rule himself. Think of how many of our congressmen are alcoholics. A heavy percentage of our senators and congressmen are alcoholics. Think of, in recent years, a number who have been consorting with prostitutes, and this has been much publicized. In Proverbs 31, 3 to 5, it is not for kings, O Lemuel, it is not for kings to drink wine, nor for princes strong drink, lest they drink and forget the law and pervert the judgment of any of the afflicted. Uh, civic leaders should be impartial. In 29.14, the king that faithfully judges the poor, his throne shall be established forever. In Leviticus 
New English Bible, you shall not pervert justice either by favoring the poor or by subservience to the great. You shall judge your fellow countrymen with strict justice. They should be thorough. In Proverbs 25, 2, it's the glory of God to conceal a thing, but the honor of kings to search out a matter. Make a thorough investigation. Base their decision on facts. And they should be able to recognize evil and crush it. We're really lacking in that as crime is overrunning our land and as criminal nations are overrunning the world. In Proverbs 20, 26, a wise king scattereth the wicked and bringeth the wheel over them. David talks about his own approach to handling the wicked. He says in Psalm 101, 3 following, I will set no wicked thing before mine eyes. I hate the work of them that turn aside. It shall not cleave to me. A forward heart shall depart from me. I will not know a wicked person. Whoso privately slandereth his neighbor, him will I cut off. Him that hath a high look and a proud heart will I not suffer. Mine eyes shall be upon the faithful of the land, that they may dwell with me. He that walketh in a perfect way, he shall serve me. He that worketh deceit shall not dwell within my house. He that telleth lies shall not tarry in my sight. Uh, God created the government to see that justice is done, that he would, that the government would punish the evildoer and reward the good. That's the purpose of human government from God's standpoint. There's a need for wise and righteous aids in government. No man is omniscient. He needs aids. 1522, without counsel, purposes are disappointed, but in the multitude of counselors they are established. But they must be wise and righteous counselors. Proverbs 25, 4 and 5, Take away the dross from silver, and there comes out a vessel for the smith. Take away the wicked from before the king, and his throne will be established in righteousness. Dr. Bill Bright, when he was with us, said that in his opinion, there are more righteous men in our federal government now, in key positions, than ever in the history of this country. Our president has sought to surround himself with men like this, and we can really praise God for that, as entrenched as humanism is in the institutions of our country. Nonetheless, we have hope. As we've said, our part is to pray, to ask God to give us good leaders, to raise up men. God, give us men. A time like this demands strong minds, great hearts, True faith and ready hands. Men whom the lust of office does not kill. Men whom the spoils of office cannot buy. Men who possess opinions and a will. Men who have honor. Men who will not lie. Men who can stand before a demagogue and damn his treacherous flatteries without winking. Tall men, sun-crowned, who live above the fog in public duty and in private thinking. For while the rabble, with their thumb-worn creeds, their large professions, and their little deeds, mingle in selfish strife, lo, freedom weeps, wrong rules the land, and waiting justice sleeps. God, give us men. We need to pray. And then God, make us men. Make us that kind of a man. Make us men in the fray, men involved in the rough and tumble of the political ins and outs of the nation. God use us in that way. Make us salt and light. 
And it starts, of course, with being a righteous man, committing our life to Christ, genuinely walking with him. Let us pray. As our hearts abound, if you've never personally committed your life to Jesus Christ, never surrendered your will to him, put your trust in him, do that even now as our hearts abound. Pray like this, Lord Jesus, I need that righteousness myself first. And I do trust you as my Savior. I surrender you as my Master. Cleanse me. Come and dwell within. Amen.